0: This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Eugene Can, and my co-host is Sharice Poon. The format of this podcast is light like catch-up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by myself and one chosen by Sharice.
1: We pick our topics every week from the Megan briefing, which is an email we send out that's filled with current news, interesting links, and more analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the two things that we're most interested in and then try to come to some kind of conclusion, whether it's on the state of culture, media, tech, food, anything in our modern times. If you like this podcast and would like to do something to support us, the one thing that really helps is to share your favorite episode with a friend.
0: How's it going, Sharice?
1: It's good. It's going good.
0: Nice. Nice. And you have a guest I do have you? a guest
1: next to me who will not be joining us on this podcast. But Joan Wong from Observations Abroad on Macon and who I've mentioned before is with me in
0: London right now. And your good friend, your homie. Yes.
1: My homie.
0: I can, I can hear in the background though.
1: Yeah. I mean, she's going out for coffee in a bit and then I'll talk shit about her then. So just
0: nice. going to wait. How was, uh, how was your week?
1: It's been interesting in terms of the masters picking up.
0: Define picking up.
1: It is increased workload. But I think more than that, more than increased workload, it's more like the attitude of the tutors and my classmates since coming back has been really like, okay, let's get down to business. Like, term one was kind of adjusting, you know, getting used to each other and the school and the program. And now that we're back, it's really like, you have to bring your, you know, best concepts and be prepared to like think critically about things in a good way, in a good way.
0: As in you were bored, you were, you were bored ah, in semester one.
1: No, I wasn't bored in semester one. That sounds terrible. I was, it was just not as much work, I think. And and now it's good. How's your week been?
0: It's been good. Several making it up episodes ago, we are talking about basically going through your to-do list for the sake of checking it off, but. At what expense and like are you actually being productive et cetera? yeah even the last few days i've just been trying to think like what am i not doing and what i can do better and i think that it just comes down to blocking off time and having a, a more tangible constraint even though time is a human construct it's more like hey you know what if you think something's gonna take that long put it within this block and see how much you can do versus just letting it sort of be this long stream of To do tasks to tackle. Yeah. That's a little bit of alliteration for you. (laughs) Question. Yeah. So this is a debate that we had in the office this morning when I first came in. And the reason why… now
1: you're pulling in outside opinion. I see. I see.
0: So I got served this Instagram ad that was pretty random. It was an ad of Hiroshi Fujiwara who was outside a restaurant. And this happens quite often at like kind of nicer Japanese restaurants where you'll take a pic with the chef outside of the restaurant. But this restaurant had taken that photo, which was like something shot on an iPhone or whatever, or like a mobile phone, and then created an ad out of it. And basically said, it was like a testimonial. It was like, oh, Hiroshi Fujiwara. And for those unfamiliar, he's considered by, I guess, many to be the godfather of Japanese streetwear slash streetwear. But it was just interesting because at what point do you utilize someone who's not known for something as a vehicle for promotion. So for example, if you saw a actor at a restaurant and you saw a photo of them, would that lend credibility to the place? And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now.
1: It says, Hiroshi Fujiwara came to Tempura, Iraqi. He said, quote, very delicious. I like your product and creativity. End quote. We were very moved by his words. Hashtag Hokkaido, hashtag Sapporo, hashtag Tempura, Michelin star, Hiroshi Fujiwara, fragment, fragment design. Yes. Okay. I think in terms of advertising, what you have to be careful of is not misleading people, at least in this particular case, into thinking that there's some kind of greater connection than there is. Because like at a glance, I might think that Hiroshi Fujiwara has like a stake in this company or is a co-founder.
0: I'm actually not even thinking it from those terms. I'm thinking it more so, is it credible to utilize someone who's not known for a particular thing? and just utilizing them for their celebrity nature
1: are you saying is it credible for a brand to do that or is it do you think it's credible for a consumer receiving that I th- like is your both, question both sides. is your question both do sides. i as a consumer feel convinced by this kind of advertising and at what point do i not feel convinced or is your question as a brand is it ethical
0: from the brand perspective it's kind of a toss up it's like i think the ultimate thing i'm trying to get at is that john mayer has sufficiently proven himself as someone that's credible when it comes to fashion and watches, for example, even though he's a musician.
1: Okay. Just the thing is that I don't think consumers really think about whether a spokesperson has credibility
0: or not. But isn't that an issue though? I think that's the big thing I was sort of trying to get at was like, isn't it an issue if we're so easily influenced by someone that has no validity in speaking about a certain topic? I mean, obviously it's I'm like, asking a lot from like consumers. It's like trust
1: goes trust extends beyond fields of expertise, right? Like
0: does it though? Like
1: if I wasn't someone who knew you well and yeah. you made a movie recommendation, I might think, oh, Eugene can quote Streetwear King from the hundreds.
0: Whoa, whoa, you whoa. You know, whoa.
1: knows a lot about culture and therefore knows what movies are good. However, anyone who knows Eugene personally knows that he hasn't watched a movie in like 10 years.
0: Uh, yeah, that's Do you see what I mean? Valid. Is that like… No, no. But that's, that's a little bit more adjacent, right? But that's I what guess, I mean
1: by like trust is extended to encompass other areas. Well, it's more
0: like me being like… I don't understand how someone could be convinced that someone who doesn't operate in a certain space can be a worthy sort of… Um, it's less whether… Hiroshi Knows His Food or Not, it's more the premise behind celebrity endorsements and testimonials in Mm -hmm. things outside of what they're known for. At the end of the day, it's not even my restaurant. I'm just trying to think like logically the intersection of, as I mentioned, it's like celebrity culture and influencer culture in the world of selling everything. Okay. trying to influence everything.
1: I mean, I think you are just… You ask a lot from brands and you ask a lot from consumers. You want brands to be better, right? To be responsible, to take societal action, to consider themselves as more than just commercial entities. And then you want consumers to also be more critical about the way they consume things. And I think that's what it comes down to. Okay. Is that you think that we are being lazy like the rest of society when I say we. Like, most people are lazy. That's why I said it's a shortcut. Because we're lazy, we use signifiers like Fujiwara, like Kim Kardashian, like Kanye West to tell us what to like and what to look at.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm cool with that. And yeah, I mean, mean, it is
1: a little depressing, sure. But…
0: Well, I'm just wondering if it's even a valid way of thinking about it.
1: I think the alternative is just too much mental load. If… If you as a consumer consign, I'm just going to hand over my feelings about restaurants to influencers and celebrities, then I take this load off of my brain where I have to decide what restaurants are good for myself. Yeah. And, and at least for restaurants, I think that's like, okay. Yeah. I just, it's not that significant in your life choices. I do think a problem is like when you then relegate what, are celebrities saying about vaccinating my children or about, you know, how to vote at the polls? That's a problem. Yeah. So yeah. should we talk about what stories we published this week? Sure. We had part four of the making classroom audio stories go up, which is about production. Interestingly, shortly before this published, someone hit you up to ask when it was dropping. So that was they nice. hit up
0: the Making Facebook Messenger.
1: Yeah. And we're only, I think, two away from the end of this series. And then there'll be a complete, I don't know what to call it, like a course almost. If you think of it as lessons, like a six lesson course on how to produce your own audio stories. We also published a video recap of Unexpected Connections.
0: That was a really dope quote from John Jay.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you were missing some John Jay in your life, here's some more of it. We also published an illustrated interview with artist Hyun Yi who stayed at our make Suite and the Rise Hotel in Seoul. And that was a new format yeah. for us that I think we would like to do again.
0: Yeah, it was kind of fun. It was just like having them illustrate their answers. My topic this week is Toph Tucker and Jasmine Lee discuss why restaurant websites are good and we're all going to miss them. And this was part of an interview that was seen on Arena's blog. For those unfamiliar, Arena is this modern social media platform. And I say modern because it doesn't follow the traditional route of using advertisements. It's very much about privacy. But the topic itself focuses on the homogenization of restaurant website design. It starts off with a tweet by Tof that says, restaurant websites are good. They're among the last bastions of personality on the web, and you're all going to miss them. So this tweet, I think, was inspired by a pre-meeting sort of research session. That is so weird. I don't know why I said that because it's basically him just Googling what restaurant he's about to go to, which was the Astro Restaurant in Midtown Manhattan, and to his I guess, pleasant surprise, this website was super archaic looking like very much generationally dated. Yeah. But on top of that, it was also being updated regularly. So it was also providing new information. So somebody was going through some sort of system. And I say system more so on the basis of they're using the tools of this website's generation to update it. So whether it was FTP or just like modifying an HTML file. Um, That's what they were doing. So in this interview, TOF and Jennifer, they discuss what role restaurant websites play and how it's changed because of WordPress or Squarespace. So you've pulled up Astro Restaurant, right? Established Mm -hmm. 1980. Yeah. So you can tell it's like, it's a clusterfuck. It's like…
1: Well, I mean… You can figure it out. Like, it's very clear. It says home, menu, hours, about us, gallery, contact us. But yeah, it's neon green. There's some blue. There's yellow There's so and many ochre. different fonts going and on. And aesthetically, it, it's not what we are used to anymore. But it's yeah. still functional.
0: So do you think that we, we gravitate towards these types of sites now? And I think that comment by, by Tolf and his tweet was valid on the basis that at a time when everything looks the same, we actually want something a little bit different.
1: What's so interesting in this interview is that also our habits have just changed. And I think Toph was doing some you know, anecdotal research and talking to friends or people online. And it turns out that nobody actually looks at restaurant websites anymore, which when I think about it is true because I just... Google it, and then the first hit is like the Google hit, right? Where it tells you if it's open now and then like 4.4 or 700 ratings and the address. And that's really all I need because ultimately what you need from a restaurant site is very basic and Google can just generate it Yeah. to the point where they can generate the menu even if the website is good and they just like reformat it into the Google view. So maybe that's something that we're missing as well because our habits that lean towards convenience is funny. We were talking about laziness earlier. Our habits that lean towards convenience have moved us away from experiencing these sites at all.
0: Mm -hmm. So one of the quotes towards the end of the interview was particularly interesting. It's like what you lose when you start moving into CMSs. And I only think it's really a CMS thing so much as a, a more cookie cutter type approach. One of the quotes is, if there's a story you want to tell or a vibe you want to convey or an aesthetic or some news or a new development or a new menu or something, any of that can be conveyed within a content container on Facebook, Instagram, WordPress, Squarespace, or another modern tool. So basically arguing that, hey, you know what? The very simple sort of serving of information is there. Yeah. But when you do that, you forfeit a whole layer of choice in terms of how things relate to each other. Everything doesn't just have to be a bunch of pages that have some number of tags. Maybe yeah. the menu items could be something other than just elements in a list. Like maybe they have a relationship to each other, or maybe they're changing over time and you want to capture that. Or maybe they have people attached to them, or there is someone special who prepared the dish, or there's a process by which it's prepared, or maybe there's a seasonality or periodicity to it. So it just goes on and I know I was that, drawn
1: to the same section because he yeah, just lists a, a bunch of ways that restaurants can be special, that every yeah. restaurant has something special about it. And If you are at a restaurant and you are the person in charge of the website, it's thinking about those things and how to present that and not just covering the basics of like opening hours and menu.
0: Yeah. So I think that's kind of the thing that I'm I'm trying to get at is I mean, we I think we've actually talked about website design and restaurant design of websites before. before.
1: But this is a better article than whatever we discussed previously.
0: Yes. So my whole thing is this is that perhaps there is the argument that in a world that's going increasingly content-focused and content-first, there's an opportunity to rethink how the modern website operates. Yeah. So there's yeah. two things that I think, generally speaking, restaurants can get away doing. One of them is not an original thought from myself, but the article mentions or the interview mentions that, hey, you can actually get away with a pretty shitty website for a restaurant, which is fair. Mm-hmm. And also, there's not often… I would say that not every restaurant has a strong social media presence either. Because I mean, their, their yeah. forte is not necessarily that. It's like cooking and service mm-hmm. and great experiences. So maybe there's a way to fundamentally rethink how these can interact with one another. I've been thinking about this more and more lately too. It's What is the value of a website on its own as its own vertical outside the domain of like a Facebook or an Instagram? right and what are the things yeah. that you can actually do and outside of the walled garden it's exactly that right like you can kind of play by your own rules and yeah. i just wonder if the rules that you can institute for your own sandbox are worth the effort or is there a way to rethink what a restaurant website could should do
1: i mean i think that you're right for a restaurant there's also lower barriers in terms of Even the experience doesn't have to be amazing and people will forgive that. So you can put things adjacent to each other however you want because it's not a tool, right? Like I don't need to make an account. It's not like, what's something we use? Dropbox paper. It's not like Dropbox paper where it's like a tool that I need to use. It's something that I'm just reading. So it can be almost like a book essentially where you could be putting videos next to images, next to text or whatever you want to do, you can put chef stories next to pictures of the food. I'm, I'm not even being creative enough at this point, but yeah, there's just a o- lot of yeah. opportunity. Something that was interesting is that I thought that this article would go towards kind of saying, oh, you know, Squarespace templates are terrible and they've ruined the landscape, but actually they come back around and say, oh, it's not that like they celebrate CMS in a way to say CMS has made it easier for restaurants to have websites and to maintain their websites, the reality is that restaurants probably don't have a dedicated content manager, right? Or a dedicated website person. So you have to make it easy for them to update in order to make them want to update. Yeah. And if it's easy, then there's a greater chance that they might do something fun or interesting
0: and different. Do you think that we're, we're experiencing what is essentially a restaurant issue where they're failing to define the function of a website? Or is it a CMS slash the structure of the internet issue where we're basically moving towards more commodified experiences where everything's the same, everything's cookie Well Does
1: that make sense? I mean, we're almost moving to a point where the restaurants don't really have the website so that, and they mentioned this too, they don't have the website so that people will visit the website. They have the website so that Google can crawl their website and then put it on the page and then get the information from the website to generate mm-hmm. results. Right, so I guess we're moving to a point where either you can just enter your information somewhere. Right now, it's just through websites so that Google can see it. But you enter enter your information somewhere so that search engines can see it, or you have to go the whole way to make like an argument for why your website needs to exist that's not related to the basics.
0: I guess consistently, you see a lot of contradictions as to like what do you want? Do you want optimization and ease of use or do you want personality, right? Because I think that I don't know, would you say they're incompatible? Because to be optimal and to be to be razor focused on something prevents you from having some of the missteps that suggest personality.
1: I don't say they're incompatible but Um, that's hard.
0: It's more of a philosophical question of anything. There really isn't an answer, right?
1: Because I think so far, like the way my brain works, at least for websites and for restaurant websites, ease of use should come first still. Despite everything we've said, like you should still be able to see opening hours and the menu and the address. And so if you cannot do that, like if you cannot cover those points, then it's already failing. No matter how much personality you have, you can't make up for that. Yeah. But if you can do ease of use and then add personality, I don't know.
0: You know, at the end of the day, restaurants also serve different functions. Like Not every restaurant is trying to redefine food. Yeah.
1: And not every restaurant has personality. I mean, something they say... as well as that you have to have a reason for updating your website. Like if you're a restaurant that doesn't have a seasonal menu that is the same since it opened and is going to be the same forever, then yeah, there's not really a point of having a web presence for you other than to tell people where you are and that you're not closed down. But if you are a restaurant that has events or changes the menu or guest chefs or whatever, then that's like an opportunity to highlight those things. Like not all restaurants are the same. So overall, what did you take away from this article?
0: One of the reasons why I picked this is that a lot of signals are suggesting we're trying to push away from everything that... Not push away. Push away is overly strong of word. I think we're reconsidering the experiences brought on by the current um, digital landscape. And what I mean is like sort of the same, same approach of everything the fact everything looks alike it's almost as though you have a sort of cliché brand identity and you just sort of replace the product within right and what what i took away was hey there there seem to be a growing number of people that want things that are imperfect that are unique and also showcase that i think i maybe it's the 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 ability to have uh, a little bit more honesty in what we see out there. And I think it, it's the one thing I think is going to be the big trend in 2019 because you saw it sort of take place at the end of last year was, how do we start becoming a little bit more comfortable with the situation and questioning the situation that we see currently? And that that's the one of perfection and the expectations that that come with everything.
1: Yeah, I think put a pin in it. We talked about it before. We're talking about it now. I think even a year down the road, it'll be worth revisiting to see what changes have been made. So my topic for the day is billionaires start to lose their luster. Today's subject stems from an article we shared in the briefing from Axios it's roughly about the world economic forum that took place in davos switzerland last week some things that happened there is that the forum chief Klaus schwab said that dramatic changes have to be made to the very system that made them wealthy as in what worked for us needs to be changed so that it can't keep happening which is a significant change because they hadn't really talked about that in the past and in fact had previously been really defending the system in which they got wealthy. One quote from this Axios article that I actually love is turkeys don't generally vote for Thanksgiving. And in Davos, billionaires like Michael Dell laughed at the idea that they should pay significantly higher taxes. Um, so, So just saying that like, it's funny to think of billionaires kind of advocating for their own death, like as in billionaires shouldn't exist anymore. The article goes on to say, you know, a lot of political and economic figures have suggested we need to examine the wealthy more closely and also start taking action. Senator Elizabeth Warren suggested implementing a 3% wealth tax. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez said that a system that allows billionaires to exist and keep existing is immoral. The main reason I picked this is. Also Joan related. This is a podcast all about Joan now. Because before you sent me the subjects, before you sent me the list of links that you were interested in, we had had a conversation about the podcast, How I Built This. We're talking about it. And she mentioned this episode she'd listened to. It came out recently with Andy Dunn of Bonobos. And he says about wealth, that he's lucky to have any of it. And he said the difference between 20 million and 40 million on a personal level is not significant for an individual's state of life. And he says that it really should just go to four things, family and loved ones who were a part of getting you to where you were, investing in other entrepreneurs and companies, political contributions, and being philanthropic. And he says that optimizing for greater wealth as an existing millionaire, is warped. And I just found it really coincidental that I'd had that conversation before you sent those links. I guess it's just proof that this is in our cultural sort of conversation right now.
0: Yeah. Of those four things you mentioned, I think they're all, they're all very, very valid. I think it depends also on like... I guess in many ways, your discipline and what industry you work in I've been thinking about this a lot as of late, and it comes down to what are the things that I personally want to achieve, right? And what are things that I think are valuable? And I mean, obviously, money is a critical part of the ability to disseminate ideas, influence, and not necessarily in a bad way. Just like you know, have the ability to to work with the best people or to compensate people fairly to uh, allow people to live a certain life so they can focus on what you deem to be important. But I think the other side of it was. The things I find important are also like, how can I have access to people to work with them? Because that in itself is also a luxury and that's not necessarily easy to attain. What do you mean? Having Like, I think that, for example, do you have the ability to call up any person today and ask them if they want to work on something together? I think that's like something that creators generally would love to have in terms of access. Like, hey, you know what? I want to work on something with someone that I really respect. Can I make that happen?
1: Okay, so you don't mean having financial assets.
0: I think financial is important, but to Andy from Bonobos, I think whatever whatever he said in that podcast seems fairly accurate from what I think would be a right way of looking at it, right? Because at the end of the day, like they've even done this is like the most referenced sort of scientific study, but everyone is generally you know, peak happiness around $70,000 US a year. And that's obviously probably living in the US. Anything after that is inconsequential in terms of like significantly moving the needle, right? Right, essentially
1: inconsequential.
0: What I'm trying to get back to is like, well, you look at Davos, you look at the way they are looking at the overall sort of landscape, right? And it makes me wonder, this is something I was also thinking is like, my friend is working on a project right now where this guy's like a, a billionaire and he just decided to kind of come out of retirement, work on some F&B projects, and he's worth like $6 billion. And I'm thinking to myself, when you have that much wealth, what is the thing that prevents you from necessarily having a greater impact on the broader landscape and the world? Like, you know, what, what are the things that prevent you from engaging in greater philanthropy, for example? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, those are things I was actually part of the one one of the reasons why I wanted to Potentially just put this out there in terms of choosing this topic or at least putting it at the forefront because it's at a point now where, yes, you might have money to, I guess, do whatever you want to do, essentially. But then is it. I'm, I'm just trying to understand and work through like the, the belief system of someone.
1: I think it requires a little bit of explanation still. So the World Economic Forum which was founded in 1971 as a not-for-profit organization, brings together annually some 2,500 business leaders, international political leaders, economists, some celebrities and journalists, but they're not the main point, right? The premise is that rich people might have good ideas about how to help the world. So if you go off of that basic premise, then they are setting themselves up to make a difference for the better. Like they're not coming together to talk about how can we become more rich as individuals? They've already decided we're here because we have some sort of power to change the way things are working. Yeah. So whether or not you say like they should, like whether or not billionaires have to, that's very subjective, right? To the Yeah, billionaire no, one, no one has to do
0: it. But I'm the just people curious. at
1: that World Economic Forum, they have decided, right? Like that's their goal in coming together. So if they came together and the outcome was just like, how can we be more rich? Then they've like failed at their own goal that they set.
0: Yeah. 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 Because I guess for me, maybe it's once again, this sort of tinge of of liberalism by virtue of the the... Publications I I read, right? But it seemed as though it was an overtly negative outcome in terms of what happened at Davos. Or just like, just people were dismissive, I guess.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I guess there's kind of a feeling like, well, what's taking you so long? I think there's still this belief that when you have so much money, it should be easier to affect change. Something else that. Joan and I were talking about is the same thing you said about this societal responsibility with the assets that you have. And I think you and I were on the same page that when you're comfortable, you start looking externally. Like when you individually, you don't have to worry about paying rent, then you can do with your time and what assets you have to help other people.
0: Mm -hmm. So do you think that the belief systems that we have currently are part of a broader movement that is bubbling up? Mm. I mean, this is a small sample size, but three people privy to this conversation right now, probably more, I mean, whoever's behind me in the office, probably have some sort of similar thought process around it.
1: I'm thinking about, well, I'm thinking two things. One is it might be bubbling up because the world is going to shit. And we see that happening very rapidly, you know, in terms of climate change and poverty and homelessness, et cetera. We are very quickly destroying what we have Mm -hmm. and not taking care of the people who are here. But the the other side of the coin is that we talked about this before with millennial burnout. So many of us in this age bracket are not yet comfortable. So we don't have the ability. We don't have this comfort to be thinking about what we can be doing externally. And if we do, like we just get more stressed out or people are getting more stressed out because it's like on top of trying to figure out your own job situation or rent, et cetera, you, you also feel this larger need to take care of the planet. Yeah. Which is why we need billionaires to step in and do something.
0: Yeah, hopefully.
1: I I think my takeaway is that this is a little bit different for me because I don't really hold brands accountable the same way you do. Like, I don't expect as much from brands, but I do think I expect a lot from billionaires as individuals. Like, Mm. if you as a singular person have so much wealth, I'm thinking of Jeff Bezos. Paper wealth. You have so much ability to do something with that yeah and it seems it does it really I mean I don't know I mean correct me if I'm wrong it does seem really greedy and selfish to keep it for yourself especially when we've just talked about the difference between 20 million and 40 million being inconsequential
0: to that one person
1: yeah to that one person yeah yeah I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Am, am I being crazy? Like, I, sh- I don't know. I feel weird to be not able to empathize with the plight of a billionaire.
0: I guess one of the last things I'm, I, I want to ask you is, how do you think that people can influence billionaires? Or do you think that they will generally operate in their own lane and kind of make their decisions on their own? And they'll make their decisions on their own.
1: I think it depends how they came about their wealth. I think if they came about their wealth through companies and corporations that have employees, then the minimum requirement is that they should take care of their workers. Hmm. If it's generational, I think it's harder because that's saying like, oh, you need to do more with your individual money. Yeah. Ultimately, I think this is going to be really (laughs) hippy-dippy. You can't control what other people do, right? So you can only control your own actions. And maybe the way to influence greater change is to do what you can with what you personally have. So even if all I have left over at the end of the fiscal year is 100 USD, right? Then what do I do with that? And talking about that, I think, is good, too. It's not to big up yourself and say, oh, I gave 100 USD to charity, but that is how change happens, right? If if more people keep hearing about something like this and doing that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good place to cap things off.
1: Yeah, I agree. If you are interested in hearing more about making, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makein.com.
0: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend.
1: Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at chariseatmakin.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, and Eugene macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charise.
0: And this is Making It Up.